Good morning. My name is Hunter Hughes, and uh, one of the ways that I get to serve at Covenant Life is as the deacon of our student ministry, which truly is one of the highlights of my life these days. Um, Today is a unique privilege for me and just a sweet opportunity to open God's word with you all. It is vital that we listen to the right voices. At the peak of my basketball career, which was sixth grade, (laughs) I found myself on the court at the start of a second half of a close game. If you've played any sport before, you know that it is crucial that you start off that second half with energy, come out of the gates hard, ready ready to compete. And on this day, on this second half, I was ready. The ball was tipped right to me. I was considered a big man uh, on my team, a big man, and what we were supposed to do was, as quickly as possible, get it to a point guard who actually knew how to dribble. But in this moment, I saw my opportunity to make a break for the basket right away. So there I went, full speed ahead, barreling down the court. And historically, whenever I tried a stunt like this, I uh, would quickly get overtaken by a quicker player who would easily take the ball from me. But today was different. Today was different. As I neared the hoop, the noise of the crowd got louder and louder. Man, I was giving them quite a show, right? Quite a show to start off the second half. And then gracefully, I lifted off one leg and laid the ball into the hoop, an easy layout to start off the second half. As I landed and turned toward the bench, I expected to see my teammates and my coach applauding my valiant effort and my strong, aggressive start, but to my dismay, I saw something different. I saw my coach's head in his hands And then it hit me. I had just scored on the wrong hoop. (laughs) In In the chaos of that moment with voices all around, I could not hear the voice of the one who mattered most. My teammates and my coach urging me to stop Turn the ball, uh, turn around, you're going the wrong way. In the noise, I missed the voice that mattered most. We can all think of probably plenty of examples when we listen to the wrong voice, a voice that didn't actually speak what was true or what was best for us. And we know that the consequences of doing that can be severe. They can be serious, even more serious than scoring on the wrong basketball hoop, though that was a pretty traumatic experience for a 12-year-old boy. (laughs) So this morning, we are continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. And last week, we saw that something has Paul astonished, and not just astonished, but angry. 
You see, he was the first person who came into this region and gave the people the gospel. The good news that all types of people, Jews and Gentiles, can be justified. That is, they can be made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This gospel William Tyndale would write is a word that signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and make him sing, dance, and leap for joy. And the Galatians were deserting this gospel and turning to a different message, a false one. A message that would not lead to justification or to joy, but instead would lead to condemnation and enslavement. And so what was that false gospel? Well, we've heard that the teachers who came into this region, who came probably from Jerusalem, they were telling the Christians there that in order to be truly justified, it wasn't actually enough simply to place your faith in Christ, but you still needed to keep parts of the Jewish law. You needed to be circumcised, and you needed to keep other ceremonial laws. So how did the teachers gain a foothold among the Galatian church, churches, and how did they draw Christians away from the true gospel that Paul preached? Well, they did it, and we've heard already that they did it by attacking Paul himself. They knew that if the people began to distrust the messenger, they would inevitably distrust the message. And Paul knew this too. If his credibility crumbled, the gospel would fall. From this letter, we can infer that the teachers um, were saying things like this about Paul. You know, Paul, though he does get some things right, he has actually changed the gospel in order to get your approval. He's not actually a real apostle with any type of authority. We came from the true apostles in Jerusalem, and they agree with us. And because these were the accusations, Paul is going to spend a good portion of this letter defending his apostleship. Apostles were those who had seen the risen Christ and were specifically commissioned by Christ to proclaim his gospel. It's not that these apostles had any authority in themselves, but their authority was derived directly from the one with all authority, the authority of Christ. So to reject a true apostle was to reject the Lord himself. Just as a rejection of an Old Testament prophet would have been considered a rejection of the God who put the words in his mouth. So, is Paul's aim in these verses we just heard read simply to defend his reputation? Is he trying to make a name for himself? This is what the teachers were accusing him of. And what Paul would say to this is, no way, that is not my purpose. Galatians, listen to me. I care for you like a shepherd cares for his sheep. I want what is good for you because I love you. 
These false teachers, they are like thieves. They are the ones coming just to benefit themselves by you. So please know that I am not defending my authority to promote myself. I am defending it so that you will believe and trust the gospel of God. So starting in verse 11 of chapter 1 and continuing through a good portion of chapter 2, Paul is going to defend his apostleship. Again, not with the aim to uphold his dignity, but to uphold God's gospel. And you can see this from, uh, that this is his aim from the first two verses of our passage, verse 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Before we go on, let's stop and pray. Oh God, you do have the words of eternal life. And we praise you this morning for this truth. Um, especially on a day when we hear so many false promises of how we can have the good life. The central element, you tell us, of eternal life is knowing you, the knowledge of you. And God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. And we do confess, God, that we have cherished other voices. We have not cherished your word as we ought And because of that, God, we are in desperate need of you today. We need you to help us hear and to respond to your word and to help us hear your voice in the midst of so much noise and confusion in the world around us. More than we know, God, we desperately need you. So speak, please. We are listening. Amen. Okay, so how can we be confident that Paul was a true apostle of Jesus and that he preached God's gospel and not his own, what will his defense be? In Galatians 1, 11 through 24, Paul is going to tell his story. He wants his readers to look at three things, which will be our three sermon points. First, look at Paul's former life and purpose. Look at Paul's former life and purpose. Two, Look at God's gracious revelation and his purpose. God's gracious revelation and his purpose. And then third, look at Paul's alibi and new purpose. Look at Paul's alibi and new purpose. And when we look at these things, not only will we see Paul's apostleship defended, but we will also see the gospel of God magnified. So let's first look at Paul's former life. And purpose. We'll read in verses 13 and 14 again. For I would have, uh, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, beyond, uh, beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. By drawing our attention to his former life, Paul is wanting his readers to seriously consider 
would this man really have made up the gospel of grace? And there are two aspects of Paul's former life that he is highlighting. The first is his relationship to the church of God. So Paul says in verse 13 that he persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. In Acts 26, uh, Paul is sharing his story with King Agrippa, and he goes into a lot more detail than he does in this passage. And we're going to go back there several times throughout the sermon. So Acts 26, and in verses 9 through 11, Paul expounds on his hatred of the church. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul opposed the name of Jesus and his church, and he did all of this absolutely convinced that he was in the right. He viewed his raging fury as righteous fury. Paul's hatred of Christ and his church went deep. The second aspect of Paul's former life that he highlights is his relationship with his Jewish traditions. In Galatians 1.14, he speaks of his advancement in Judaism and of his extreme zeal for the traditions. Back in Acts 26, verses 4 and 5, he tells King Agrippa, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul was on a very promising trajectory among a well-respected sect, the Pharisees. His life as a tradition-loving and Jesus-hating Jew was going very well for him. So why would he change anything about it? Why would he change? And in Paul's account of his former life, we also see the purpose of his former life. If we go back a verse earlier to Galatians 1.10, Paul says that at one point he was seeking the approval of man. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul's purpose in this former life, though it was cloaked in religious zeal, was all about elevating himself, all about advancing in the sight of men. So, if this is what Paul's former life looked like, how am I supposed to make sense of these sentences? Written by the same man in his letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. What in the world 
happened to Paul? Isn't he the guy who hated the church? Now listen to him. Like a nursing mother, being affectionately desirous, eager to share our own selves, there is no way this could be the same person. It is. Uh, and we'll read about what happened to Paul in just a moment. But reflecting on Paul's former life should lead us to consider the awesome power of God's gospel. You see, human messages about how to have the good life, they aren't for wicked people. They are for people who really just need a little help, a little adjustment. But God's gospel is for the wicked and for those who are hopelessly lost. Human gospels don't target people like this because they cannot bring about impossible change, but God's gospel can. God is not intimidated by the lostness or opposition of anyone. He doesn't wonder if his gospel is mighty enough to change someone. God's gospel makes dead people alive. It is his power for salvation. It can handle someone like Paul. It can handle your son who wants nothing to do with God. It can handle your career-obsessed coworker. It can handle your atheist neighbor, your set-in-their-ways parent, or your apathetic brother. It can handle your friends who seems hopelessly lost with no desire to be found. It can handle someone like you, and it can handle someone like me. God saves mightily as his magnificent gospel goes forth. What a wonder. Now, we'll move on to the second part of Paul's apostolic defense. Let's look at God's gracious revelation and his purpose. God's gracious revelation and his purpose. In Galatians 1, 15 through 16a, we read, But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. How exactly did God intervene in Paul's life? Well, we read here that it was through a revelation of his son. And again, we get more detail in Acts 26, this time verses 12 through 15. In connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had, we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, which means you are fighting a losing battle. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What is it that God reveals to people when he brings them from death to life? Is it a new set of standards to live by or a more compelling worldview? No, that is not how he changes people. 
He changes people by revealing a person, by revealing his son, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul knew the facts that people claimed about Jesus, that he was the long-awaited Messiah, that he rose from the dead after his crucifixion. But what's clear is that when people are converted, those facts gain significance. If we turn to 2 Corinthians verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, we read, this is Paul speaking, For God who said, let light shine in our hearts, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. God doesn't just reveal facts about Jesus, but he makes the reality behind those facts shine in our hearts. If you are using the ESV, uh, English Standard Version translation today, you might see a footnote in Galatians 1.16 after the word to. And that's there to indicate that the Greek word is actually in, which That's what the the New American Standard Bible translates it as. So God was pleased to reveal his son in Paul. That sounds sounds strange to us, uh, but the point of it is that an internal revelation, that there is an internal revelation that God gives at salvation. He shows us in the deep places of our heart that he is holy, that we are sinners, and that Jesus is our only hope for salvation. So, I ask, has God revealed his son in you? Has the message about Jesus moved past an intellectual understanding, and has it captivated your heart? Have you believed that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, but that he was God with us? How amazing. Have you been grieved by your personal sin against God, understanding that you are guilty before him? And have you understood that Jesus wasn't just executed, but that he sacrificed his life willingly as the perfect and only substitute for sinners? And have you trusted that God raised Jesus from the dead to show that he is the victorious king who has truly and finally defeated sin and death? If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the son of God who accomplished salvation and rose from the dead, and if you have repented of your sins and called on his name, praise God. You are justified He has made you right. Be encouraged and be humbled. Man does not reveal this to us. God reveals these truths to us. It is his work. Uh, For those of you today who are not um, believers in Jesus and have not trusted in him for the salvation of your sins, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider the way that God intervenes in people's lives today. If you talk to members of this church, I imagine that a common theme you will hear about how they came to know Jesus will be that it, a key 
piece of that was the role of God's word. You see, when the scriptures are opened, the beauty and the brilliance and the truth about Jesus shines. So I bet as you make your way home today, you're not going to see a, br- a blinding light as you drive up Dale Mabry. For the sake of other drivers, I hope that is the case. You're not going to see the light. You're not going to hear the audible voice of Jesus. But have you considered that when you show up here, when you come to a place where God's word is open and Jesus is proclaimed as the risen king, that God is actually stepping into your path and saying, Hey, do you know who I am? Why are you opposing me? Why do you trust yourself more than me? Come, come to me and find rest and find true everlasting life. It's not going to look like Paul's Damascus Road experience, but God is still revealing his son to people by his word. And if you want to know more about what the Bible says about Jesus, please do not leave here without talking to somebody about that, asking your questions. If that desire is in you to know Jesus in his word, God might be graciously intervening in your path today. Okay, so let's go back to our passage and see. uh, We've seen that God revealed his son in Paul, but we also see that he did that for a purpose. What was God's purpose? In verse 16, Paul says, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You can imagine Paul expressing his astonishment to the Galatians. Do you realize that God didn't save me just for me? He saved me for you. My life and my ministry is for you, and you're rejecting me. Let's read Acts 26, verse 16 through 18, and hear Jesus speaking to Paul. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Galatians, look at who I used to be. I hated Jesus of Nazareth. I raged against all those who called on his name. And I was doing so well. In Judaism. That's where I had the approval. Can't you see that I didn't just decide to make a change? Can't you see I'm not preaching the gospel of grace so that you will like me? I am preaching it because the gospel wrecked me. And God specifically told me to come to you, Gentiles, and to preach Him, to preach that forgiveness of sins comes by faith in Him. I am doing this for you. Galatians, listen to me. But Paul uh, is not yet finished with his argument. He's going to move on 
And we'll move on to our third point now, which is look at Paul's alibi and his new purpose. Look at Paul's alibi and his new purpose. Paul is now going to tell us, uh, to the end of our passage, he's going to tell us his whereabouts, uh, what happened, where he went after his conversion. Uh, Why is he doing this? Well, his reason is uh, to show that he didn't learn his message from any man, nor was he sent by man like the false teachers claimed. And there are three parts to Paul's alibi in verses uh, 16b through 24. Um, We'll read verse 16b through 17. So this is the first part of Paul's alibi, and he is telling about his time in Arabia. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul is wanting to make it clear that he is an apostle independent of the ones in Jerusalem. He didn't go right to them after God's revelation. Instead, he went away into the Arabian wilderness. And what happened there? Well, I wish Paul went into more detail, but he doesn't. But we do know from other places, like Acts 26, verse 16, that Jesus intended after Paul's conversion to continue to reveal more of himself to Paul. And so for this reason and others, some commentators have concluded that Paul's journey into Arabia was really a time of intense discipleship with Jesus. That Jesus was revealing to Paul how all the scriptures testify about him. Others will say that Paul went into the Arabian wilderness to preach to the people living there. And that's not out of the question. Uh, We know that from Acts 9, that immediately upon Saul's conversion, he started preaching in in Damascus. So either way, um, I think the point is clear, and that is that Paul, apart from any other apostle, learned the gospel that he was already proclaiming. Okay, second part of Paul's alibi is about a trip to Jerusalem. He says, yes, I did go there after several years. But his point in verses 18 and 19 is to show how short and how insignificant that trip was. He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul simply went there to visit Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, and he wasn't there long enough to be trained by him. Yes, Paul was in Jerusalem, but he swears before God that he did not get his message from any man living there. And the people wouldn't have just had to take Paul's word for this whole alibi. They could, they could ask the people in Jerusalem or the apostles in Jerusalem or Christians in Damascus to see if what he was saying is true. This story can be corroborated. So Paul moves from there, talking about his trip to Jerusalem, and then in the final part, the third part of his alibi, he speaks of his visit to the far north, to Cilicia and Syria. 
This was an area far from Jerusalem. And again, Paul is trying to distance himself from the apostles or other influential people so that the Galatians would know that he's a servant of Christ. And next week, and the beginning of chapter 2, we are going to see that Paul is not by any means at odds with the apostles in Jerusalem, but his specific purpose here is to show that he was not commissioned by them, but by Christ himself. So uh, in verses 20, 22 through 24, we read, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were hearing it said, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Paul shares this about the response of the Judean churches while he's talking about his trip to the far north. And his point here is to say that these Judean Christians, which Judea is the, where Jerusalem was, they only heard stories about him. If Paul really was a follower of a teacher or an apostle in Jerusalem, then no doubt these Judean churches would know a lot about him. They would know him well, but they didn't. Uh, it's just further evidence that Paul's apostleship and his gospel ministry was separate from any human authority. And so what was Paul's new purpose? Well, what we see in our final verse of this passage, verse 24, that Paul rejoices that the churches in Judea glorified God because of him, because of his life and because of the faith that he preached. Do you see how much Paul's purpose, that his aim and mission in life has changed in his former life? It was all about man's approval. And now he is rejoicing that the believers are giving glory to God because of his life. Rather than opposing the name of Jesus in a raging fury, he is opposing a false gospel that sought to take the glory away from Jesus and give it to man, which is what all false gospels do. They say that justification involves human effort and it doesn't lead lean wholly on Christ's work alone. And so glory is stolen from God and given to man. So Galatians, so listener, so reader of the, of the letter to Galatians, does this story, does this sound like somebody who is making up his authority, who has just decided to change his life and to speak a gospel for human approval? How did a man who rejoiced at the death of Christians become a man who suffered and died for the church? Is there an explanation more probable than this? That the risen Lord graciously intervened in Paul's life and called him to preach his gospel to the Gentiles. Paul desperately wants them and us to know that he is trustworthy and that he speaks God's gospel and not his own. Okay, so in closing, I want us to zoom out just a little bit from this specific passage, and I want to consider what are some applications of having the authoritative voice of God in Scripture, because the specific men, the apostles that, that Christ appointed to preach him among the nations, they are no longer around. 
but God still does speak authoritatively through them and through others in Scripture. So, three pretty quick applications of having God's authoritative voice in Scripture. First, read eagerly. How excited would you be if I told you that tomorrow when you wake up, the creator of the universe is going to show up to your house and he is going to talk to you. He is going to say things that you need to hear. Wouldn't that blow your mind? I would, I would have a hard time sleeping. I don't know about you. Well, God does have something to say to you. As often as we read his word, he is speaking. And in a day with so much noise around us, don't we need to hear his voice clearer, louder, and more often than any other voice? And I have to say, it is truly a comfort to be in a church that values scripture and the authority of the Bible um, above anything else. And it is a comfort to know that members all across this room are daily seeking to read and submit to God's word. It is the most loving thing that you can do, not just to God, not just for yourself, but it's the most loving thing you can do for your spouse, for your kids, for your family, the rest of your family, for your neighbors, and for your church. Read God's word eagerly. Second application of having God's authoritative voice in Scripture is that we must listen carefully. Acts 17 tells us of a time when Paul and Silas came to some Jews living in Berea. And in verse 11, it says, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These Jews were commended for holding scripture in such high regard that they had to test the truth claims of these men against the rest of scripture. And that is a great example for us. Again, I have to just thank God for being in a church that listens so closely to the doctrine that is preached here from the pulpit, from classes, etc., and to have a body that cares so much that it is true, truly from God and not from man. And you might be, you might be thinking because of that, uh, because scripture is foundational in our sermons or in our CLK curriculum or songs or prayers, that I'm, I'm safe, you know, I'm safe from, uh, from being led astray. And again, praise God for what is proclaimed at this church. But I do want us to think about how many voices come at us when we leave these walls from the songs and podcasts we listen to, the Netflix shows we watch, the books, posts, and articles that we read, there are voices, there is noise all around, and it really is crucial that we listen carefully. We don't turn everything off, but we listen, and we are ready to examine if what we are hearing is true. Third application. So read eagerly, listen carefully, and third, speak truthfully. Because God has spoken, that he has given us his voice authoritatively in his word, it is on us to speak truthfully, not to make up 
ideas, not to make up something that we feel to be true. We don't get to do that. We don't have to do that. We give people God's truth and love. From this pulpit, around our tables, in community groups, after services, let us never stop proclaiming that there is only one gospel. There is only one good news, and it is that justification, righteousness before God, comes by faith alone, through faith, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So God used faithful apostles like Paul to proclaim his gospel to the world, and he used them and others to write his message down so that we might read it, cherish it, and speak it to others. Again, I say in a day of so much noise, isn't it good news that God hasn't left us without his trustworthy voice? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for so much today. We thank you for bringing Paul's story before us, for reminding us that you sent your son into a desperately lost world to bring the good news of Jesus into the hearts of of people like us who would never seek it on our own. And so, Lord, we ask that as we reflect on your word in Galatians and as we look forward to the observance of the Lord's Supper in a moment, I ask that you would humble us. God, that you would lead us to rejoice and that you would lead us to respond in whatever way that you are pressing on us, God. Change us by your will in any way that you want. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Help us to love you and trust you more. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.